Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens and My Time Capsule is the podcast where every episode a different guest reveals the five things from their life that they would like to put into a time capsule. They can pick four things they cherish and would like to preserve, but they must also pick one thing they would like to see the back of, something they want to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. My guest in this episode is Gary Wilmot. Gary is a singer, an actor, a comedian, a presenter, a writer and a director. But at least he can't play the tuba. Gary rose to fame after being a finalist on the talent show New Faces, which led to numerous TV appearances on shows such as Copycats, his own show Q Gary, presenting the children's quiz show So You Want to Be Top, and hosting Showstoppers, where he performed songs from musicals alongside special guests. By this point, he was already well-established as a musical theatre star, having played the lead in Me and My Girl in the West End, a performance for which he was nominated for an Olivier Award. He's gone on to appear in Carmen Jones at the Old Vic and created the lead role in the Barry Manilow musical Copacabana. He was in Pirates of Penzance, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Chicago, Oliver, Half a Sixpence and The Prince of Egypt at the Dominion in London. He's been the dame in the famous star-studded pantos at the London Palladium since 2017. And he was in A Midsummer Night's Dream at the open-air theatre Regent's Park, which means he can say that thousands of people have seen his bottom in the open air. Most recently, Gary has performed in Little Miss Sunshine at the Arcola Theatre and can be seen this year in Anything Goes at the Barbican Theatre. He was made an MBE in the 2018 Birthday Honours for his services to drama and charity. So, here is me talking with, but mostly laughing with, the brilliant Gary Wilmot. Well, 
what is your background? If you, you must have been quite well to do then if your dad was a lawyer. You must have been... Well, I'm Bermondsey. Ah. That's where I was born. Yeah. Which is... You're London. Where are you in London? Yeah, I was born in Kennington Lane. Oh, no distance at all. I was born in Renfrew Road, but then when I was three, my parents moved, we moved to Wandsworth Road, literally just the other side of Vauxhall. Yeah. Nowhere near Wandsworth, really, but it's the Wandsworth Road. And, uh, and that's really where I spent all my formative years. I mean, I was really from a rough background and limited vocabulary. I, I went to a school called Beaufoy School, which was in, in the Lambeth Walk. And, uh, and when I first got my agent, I, I used to say, I'd I done that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd done that and I'd done that. And he said, don't say done. It sounds really bad. <laughs> so <laughs> I changed to did. And when I went back to talk to my mates in the pub, they were going, what are you talking posh for? <laughs> Between a rock and hard place. You can never win. In fact, I do remember bumping into one of my aunts yeah. and they're going, hello, Michael. And I, I went, hello, Aldi now, all right. And she went, all right, still posh then. <laughs> 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 That's a nice way to remember people, though, isn't it? I think. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I. Um, I mean, the block I was. Re- are we go? Is this it? Are we doing it now? Or so is it, it could be, Gary. You know, <laughs> it it's be. one of those things. I'm never quite sure. I will at some point say to you, "Well, let's do it now." Yeah. Well, I'm very excited today. A. Yeah. Because I've got yeah. a, a space booked at the dump later. <laughs> That's always Fantastic. something to look forward to. It's worth a bit of money on the black market, that, you know. <laughs> is you it? Sell that. Is it? Oh, <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah. I might get on eBay then. <laughs> But I'm also very excited because I've been a big fan of yours for many, many years. And so it's lovely to have you on my time capsule. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. We can talk about the five things from your life that you would choose to put into a time capsule. Yeah, well, um, it's uh, I don't get a jingle or anything like that, you know. (laughs) The Gary (laughs) Wilmot time capsule. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess, I, uh, what I've done, Michael, is I, I've based it around the five senses. I was because I was struggling a bit and I thought I'd limit it to the five, you know, one you can smell, one you can touch. And oh, great. Yeah. It's helped me. It was a little bit difficult, <laughs> I have to say, um, <laughs> to put a smell in a time capsule. I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know you do. I can remember years ago, there was, um, it was when I worked for Lonsdale Sports as a messenger. There were little um, souvenir shops dotted around London. They're stalls now, but they were actually shops. And uh, they would have little dolls of, you know, beef eater men and all the yeah. rest of it. And they used to sell cans of London fog. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> the Americans used to lap them up. Literally, it was just a can with a label on it going London fog and all the rest of it. And someone <laughs> made a pretty penny out of all of those. Yeah. But I don't know if anyone ever actually opened them, you know. <laughs> I, I bet they did. It's got to have some sort of smell. Proper <laughs> <laughs> London fog. Oh, my God. Now I remember it. It was disgusting. <laughs> You could have done Thames Water, couldn't you? Yeah, well, there you go. I'm sure you could, you know. We could do it now. You'd have to pay a royalty to the Queen, I bet. I'm not wading down. I did as a kid, you know, because, um, I mean, I was born and raised in Lambeth and, and right on the River Thames there, um, I mean, I was born in 1954, so there was still a lot of what we call bomb sites. Mm. If you wanted a bike, you went to various different bomb sites and you got a wheel from one and you got a frame from another one and <laughs> did your best to straighten them up. And then you went over to Styles, I think it was called, uh, our bike shop, and you get a little chain link for sixpence and you join a couple of bits of chain together to form your bike. But back in those days, I say there were a lot of these bomb sites and where there's some very glorious gull-winged top-type apartment blocks at Vauxhall Cross now. Mm. And indeed, the, is it MI5 or MI6? You would know. You're in with them. I couldn't possibly tell you. I'd have to give you. 
<laughs> but you know that building that's there? They, they were just bomb sites. There was nothing there at all. And um, in the summer months, me and my mates used to go and play on the beaches down there. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you could do that in those days. And yes. no, no one stopped you. Oi, I know your parents. Get up your own end. <laughs> None of that was going on. We were away from all that. And it's quite quite weird that, that when they built those kind of gold-winged roofed um, apartments down there, there's about four or five of them. Mm just off Nine Elms Lane, I can remember that the top one went for £5 million. And now I wish I knew back then what I know now about property in London. (laughs) (laughs) The money I wasted in the pub, ridiculous. (laughs) We used to play on on what we called the beach. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, I kind of know Bermondsey uh, for two reasons. One, it was the Charterhouse Boys Club. It was a boxing club Mm -hmm. there. Uh, and um, I didn't box, but we went there to play football there. Oh, right. And the other reason I know it is Dave Prowse had a gym down there. And for those of you who don't know Dave Prowse, he was Darth Vader in all of the movies, physical Darth Vader. He didn't do the voice because he spoke up there. He got a voice up there and he was from the West Country. <laughs> so we couldn't imagine Darth Vader having a voice like that. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but he had a gym there and it was a real bloke's gym. I mean, it stunk of sweat and... And I was I was at the old Vic in Carmen Jones, and I used to go down there three times a week, and I used to train with Dave. He was wonderful. Mm. I used to spot for him, and uh, and him for me too. Um, so yeah, they're they're the two things I really know about Bermondsey. Yeah, <laughs> great place, great place. It has its pluses and it has its minuses. <laughs> we won't go into those now. So, what is the first thing you're putting into the time capsule? Okay, so I've gone. You said there were five things. That's right. So I've gone for the five senses, and the first one I've gone for is touch. A touch is such an important thing at the moment. We're all lacking so much of that. And I think it'll be a real, real telling thing if somebody in 5,000 years' time opened up this time capsule and found a full set of PPE. I think that would be. Uh, <laughs> I think that would really bring home as to what they'd probably have some other way of dealing with it in in those days. All viruses would have gone by then, mm. I doubt, but um, <laughs> they may have gone. But but it would let them know. Uh, so that would be that would be the first thing. Um, we all have such admiration for for anybody working on the front line, particularly the nurses. But you know, the police and and fire brigade have to just throw themselves into these situations and. Um, and put their lives literally in danger, have mm. we seen over the last year. So, yeah, I think it would be poetic to put some some PP in under my, my heading of, of touch. Do you think they'll open it and go, well, this is very ineffective. <laughs> this will never stop anything. Yeah. It's, it's, where's the force field? There's no force field. <laughs> You've got the, some, the size of a pinhead. You press the button and suddenly you're you're in this bubble. Yeah. <laughs> oh, maybe viruses will have evolved yeah. to the point where they'll be running everything. They'll open the time capsule <laughs> yes. and say, I don't know how we get in there. It's impossible. <laughs> Absolutely. Do you have any connection to that world? What did your parents do? Uh, my father was uh, a singer. Is, is that what you mean? My father. I was, was a wondering singer. if you had any connection to the NHS or that sort of world. Oh uh, no, no, other than the ones that it was somebody from the NHS that probably cut my umbilical cord when I was born. <laughs> but no, no other connection. <laughs> a non-connection then, in fact. <laughs> a, non- a disconnect. <laughs> no, I, I don't really know anybody. Of course, I've had my fair share of visiting patients, um, various pantomimes you do around the country over the years. Mm. They will ask you if you would go and visit the local children's. In, in all the regalia. Yeah. So I've done that a few times. And, uh, you know, I get so much admiration for anybody that, that is prepared to, to do anything like that, really. Yeah. And, and the abuse they get sometimes uh, is just extraordinary. Extraordinary, even, yes. even without a, a, you know, a, a virus, a Saturday night in A&E must be a nightmare. Mm. But then, as you say, the idea of doing all those things, but at the same time having to wear all that gear, all that equipment. 
Yeah, I know. I know. It's like people up in space don't have to wear that kind of gear now, do they? It's all slimmed down. So, no, they're really brave. And I think PPE in the time capsule would really remind people what times were like back here. Very good. So now I'm going to jump back to a passing comment you made, Mm -hmm. which I think was me not being clear about my question. But uh, you said your dad was a singer. Uh, yeah, he was. He, he came over here on the Windrush. Did he really? Yeah, he did in uh, in '48. And um, uh, in fact, there's little bits of film of him. Whenever they show the Windrush, there's always a photograph of my dad that they use. It's it's kind of like the uh, representative photograph of the Windrush. And and lots of people have seen it. It's one where there are there are three guys in it. Two of them are standing up, and the one in the middle is sitting on a like a crate. And they're all dressed very nicely. Yeah. And my dad is the one in the middle. Oh. Harry Wilmot. And he he joined a band called the Southlanders. And my dad was the bass voice that sang, I am a mole and I live in a hole. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't I know that? That's extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that yeah, that was my dad. And I can remember I was rehearsing something. It might have been, I think it might have been The Wizard of Oz we did at the festival hall years ago. And it was one of those rehearsals, you've been through them, and you go in, they go, we need you for an hour, then don't come back until four o'clock because we're doing other scenes. And I'd seen this advert for a Windrush exhibition at the uh, the War Museum, a place that I visited quite regularly when I was at school. I used to love going there. So I walked in there, and the first thing I saw was my dad up on the deck of the Windrush being interviewed by a very prim and proper BBC interviewer. I said, why have you come to this country? And my dad, who I knew to have a low voice, for some reason, <laughs> in this instance, had quite a high voice. And he's going... Well, I come to this country to send money home to my mother. And <laughs> <laughs> forgive the accent. But, yeah, and it was surprising. And I phoned all my family and said, get yourself down here. And uh, I wanted so much to nudge the person next to me and go, wait, that's my dad, that's my dad. Oh, you should have done. Yeah, he died when I was very, very young. I was only six, uh, nearly seven when he died. So I don't really remember too much about him. And being in show business as well, of course, he was away from home a lot. Yeah. Summer season was six months long. Uh, he was going over to Germany to entertain troops over there. Station there. Oh, it must have been very weird to see that come up on the screen suddenly. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was quite an emotional thing. A repair shop. I bet you like the repair shop on television. I love you? the repair shop. It's great, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. And I had a guy there who'd, um, he was, he'd been married for 53 or 58 years and his wife had passed, but he'd got this uh, Super 8 cine film that he hadn't seen for 30 years of him and the kids and all the rest of it Uh, and uh it's quite amazing they managed to repair it and get it going again and he could sit and watch all these images mm. it must be quite strange we've we've all done it probably in lockdown you pull that trunk out from i'll sort those photographs out now (laughs) (laughs) and you pull it out and you go through them and yeah my my tendency um, these days is to go uh, let's go through those where did i put those photographs where have they gone They've disappeared, and I've lost them, <laughs> so I don't know. Well, I have the same experience. Now, did you say your dad was called Harry? Harry, yeah. Yeah, my dad was called Harry. Oh, is that right? Oh, where's yeah. Harry? I was christened Harry, but um, for some reason my agent thought it would be better to be called Gary. But oh. no, tell me about your dad. I want to know. Uh, well, it's just yeah. that every now and again I have the same experience of seeing my dad pop up on something. But usually it's always, in fact, with Christine Keeler. My father was, uh, was part of the defence team for Christine Keeler on her perjury trial. So whenever they show footage of them coming out of the court, yeah, my dad's always pushing people aside and hurrying her into a taxi and things. So, oh, wow. Yeah, weird. Oh, wow. Well, how interesting. How lovely to find that footage of your dad at the War Museum. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we will put a full PPE <laughs> kit sitting there, pristine. I, actually, I think we should have it really sweaty. Absolutely, and been worn. Lovely. So what's second? What's your second item? 
I've got a family photo. I would like to put a family photo in of all the people that, uh, you know, my kids, my wife and uh, people that are close to me, but one big family. I don't have that photograph. Um, we've got photographs kind of, you know, going on holiday and stuff like that, but never one with all the, the distant family, the cousins and all the rest of it. Just get them all in there and go, let's have this big, you know, the kind they used to take um, with one of those cameras that goes, and takes, <laughs> <Yeah>. a, <laughs> takes a, like a panoramic view. Like a school photo. That's right. Yeah. There's a great photograph of the film, A Wonderful Life. Somebody gave me, they know I like that film. And yeah. uh, at the time they gave me a book that had all the information in about it. And in the inside cover, it's a photograph of everybody that was connected with that film and it was taken with one of these one of those cameras and um i can't remember who directed it can you a wonderful life is it frank capra oh yeah frank capra yeah maybe that's right i think you're right the two of them him and james stewart are at one end and then as soon as the camera goes they run round the back <laughs> and they're at the other end as well when it arrives there so brilliant so you haven't actually got one of these photographs? No, there are photographs of various fractions of the family, of course, you know, but never this one thing where we're all there, you know, like the, the big wedding photograph that just has all of the, the family in. And um, I think that would be quite a nice thing to put in a time capsule. That's where they were generally done, isn't it? Yeah. The great big family weddings. Hundreds of people all crammed <laughs> on the steps of a church. But people don't seem to have yeah. weddings like that anymore. No, they don't, no. They tend to go to Hawaii or somewhere. Or... <laughs> I don't blame them. <laughs> no, no, rather than spending £20,000 on a bunch of people we hardly ever see, let's spend it going on a nice holiday and uh, take our best friends with us. So have you got family all over the place then? Uh, yeah, I've got some in Australia, um, in the Caribbean. There are some. I've not ever been to the Caribbean. Um, I know that, well, funny enough, I thought my father was born and raised in Kingston, Mm. And I've never really had the desire to go there because Kingston is a major city. So the roads and streets that my dad grew up in wouldn't be there. There'd be offices and stuff like that. Yeah. But my daughter did a bit of research a couple of uh, couple of years ago and discovered that my dad was born and raised in Montego Bay. And that hasn't changed very much at all. So uh, I'm really tempted to go out there yeah. and, uh, and just walk in the same footsteps as my dad did. My mum is much easier to trace. She was from Birmingham. And, uh, and what's really weird is because my dad died when I was young, I've had this kind of affinity with, with Birmingham. And I like going there. And I like the people. And I like, I, like be, I just like being there. I've, I've done quite a number of shows over the years there. Mm. And I always feel I've got more of an affinity with, with Birmingham than I have with the Caribbean, which is quite strange. Well, I suppose um, if your mum really was the person who in the end brought you up, you can understand yeah. that, I think. I love Birmingham as well. I yeah. really like Birmingham. Yeah. It's a strange place to like, <laughs> isn't it? Everybody says you're supposed to think it's a place you want to get out of, but yeah. I've always had a brilliant time in Birmingham. Well, it's morphing all the time, isn't it? It's um, because of the damage probably that was done during the war, but you thought you knew it in the 50s mm -hmm. when they were redeveloping it, and then they come along again and they, they change it. And now the high street isn't, or the main street isn't where it once was. No. <laughs> you know, it, it kind of is, but it's all been pedestrianised, and now the main street is up near five ways that's kind of like the main thoroughfare yeah but when i first started going there it was it wasn't it was where this kind of city bit is you know where the where the rep theater is now. Mm. but it's still got the ring roads sadly <laughs> <laughs> it has. i can remember i mean so many mistakes were made uh, in the 50s and 60s with redevelopment and the idea of this futuristic place with with all the cars on the roads and all the all the pedestrians up on bridges walking you know away from the cars it sounds like a great idea yeah but if you're a driver going to birmingham and you want to ask the way this is no, you can't do because you don't pass anyone no. 
It's quite quite weird, really. Yeah. I spent a lot of time in Birmingham because I was in the Archers for a couple of years. Oh, yes. You have to go up every month and do my recordings, which was brilliant fun. I got my wife to find me somewhere interesting to stay rather than than always staying in the hotel in the town centre. And I stayed at a place called the Wellington Hotel, which is a wonderful bright green pub on the inner ring road. And it's run by two fantastic men, Paul and Paul, who are a married couple. And I had one of the most joyous periods of my life staying with them. Brilliant. They would have karaoke after the bar shut. (laughs) We would stay up and sing karaoke and drink. And they were very, very funny. I remember once a bloke saying, you know, backs to the wall. And Paul said, I'm gay, I'm not fucking blind. Um, oh, I love it. There's nothing like it. No. There's nothing like it. In fact, weirdly enough, one of the next things I'm going to suggest goes into this time capsule is um, something you can hear. So we've done touch and sight. This is hearing. We're going to take a short break, which will vary in length depending on how many adverts, if any, your podcast provider wants to put in the gap. We'll be back soon. Cheers. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. We're delighted to be able to go straight back to the lovely Gary Wilmot and the things he wants to preserve in a time capsule. So we've done touch and sight. This is hearing. Yes. And hearing, I think, a full set of recordings and something to play them on of Round the Horn. (laughs) And there's the link. It's Jules and Sandy, who at the time in the 60s, when I was a kid, I used to love, I had my ear pinned to the radio for programmes like Round the Horn, Beyond Our Ken, The Navy Lark, uh, Family Favourites. Clitheroe Kid. The Clitheroe Kid, the kid himself, yeah, Jimmy Clitheroe, who was ironically massive at the time. (laughs) 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 But Round the Horn, and I don't even know if as a kid I knew what Hugh Paddock and Kenneth Williams were going on about, but I just knew it to be very, very funny. And, of course, as an adult, when I was reintroduced to them, I kind of got all those innuendo jokes and, uh, mm. and and loved it and still listen to them regularly on Radio 4 Extra at lunchtime. 
Well, so there's the link between the Wellington Arms and those guys. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you would have liked staying there then. Yeah, I would have. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Of course, the irony was uh, that it was illegal. Uh, homosexuality was illegal when they were doing those programmes. So they were they were amazing. And I know people say standing on the front line in a battle is, is being brave and it's putting your life on the line. But so many homosexual men and women at that period of time particularly in, in in mainstream entertainment, were putting their lives on the line because they could have been... Mm. Arrest, being arrested and being put in prison for something like that is bad enough, but at those times, people didn't... They turned a blind eye to what came to be known as gay bashing and, uh, you know, mm. people getting beaten up and, you know, police at the time just wouldn't follow up on crimes like that. And I'm, I'm pleased to say, whilst there's still a lot of work to do in that area, uh, we've come a million miles away from from, uh, from those days. Yes, know. thank goodness. Yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, you'd know it well, the world of yeah. musical theatre, which was, <laughs> you know, one of the great places where people went to hide, really. Absolutely. It's sad that that's what they had to do. Yeah, they could be as loud and as rude and as open as they wanted to be, and it's great. And if, yeah, I, th- I think... I- we, well, we all know how we feel. We're actors and we, we move in those circles a lot. And as you say, particularly musical theatre, there wouldn't be musical theatre without the gay gay pride. No, absolutely. No. And, and with great pride. Yeah. And of course, it was absolutely devastated through the 80s yeah. with HIV. You know, I mean, oh. I remember friend after friend. Mm. Suddenly just, that's it, they go, dead. See, I I don't understand and never have understood why people can't accept other people's behaviour. There are far too many people in the world telling other people how to live their lives. And if two guys want to go off and do whatever they do, it doesn't affect me at all. No, and of course, you wouldn't expect anybody to ask you what you do in the bedroom, (laughs) would you? No, no. And you wouldn't tell them. If they had the nerve to ask, you'd say it's none of your Your business. business. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I understand that it became a very important thing for people to come out in order to say, look, we are here. Yeah, yeah. That's very important. But as time goes on, I think people don't say to me, so are you straight? Yeah. Are you, <laughs> do you sleep with women? It seems weird that society needs something like that. Don't I, don't I don't know. We need someone to whip, if you like. And I know it was the case when my father came over here. And if anybody knows anything about the history of the Windrush, it's because there was a shortage of manpower after the war that the government decided that they would encourage people to come from the Caribbean to help get the country back on its feet. So they were asked to come. Mm-hmm. They were given that opportunity, true, and, that, and many of them grabbed it, like my dad. But they were asked to come. And then when they arrived, uh, on the list, it said, no blacks, no dogs, no Irish. <laughs> you know, and they were abused, if you like. People didn't really want them. You look at any film um, made back in those days, and you'll see it's, you hardly ever see black people but black people in them, and 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 uh, I'm pleased to say that's changing. It's changed a lot, particularly mm-hmm. particularly with um, television series like Bridgerton, you know, which is complete blind casting. I think it's fantastic. It is fantastic. Your career, you've been right mm-hmm. through the scale, really. When you think about it, when you think you started, mm-hmm. when did you really the seventies? Yeah, in the late seventies. The change between then and now is is astonishing, isn't it? Well, not astonishing, just. Why the hell has it taken so long? Yeah, it's true. Um, somebody pointed this out to me, actually. I just, when I turn up, I just, I audition, I get on, I never think about race. I was raised in a white community, pretty much. You know, I had a couple of friends, uh, Stephen Sango and Andy Adoja, but and, but they were like me. They were mixed race and they were, you know, we were all raised in what was a predominantly white community. And that's what formed me as a person. And so when I go into a rehearsal room, I don't ever look at colour. I don't see colour. I don't, I just don't. And so I was going in and and for these jobs and, and getting them. And uh, uh, when I went in for me and my girl, of course, 
before that had been people like Cole Howman playing that role and Robert Lindsay, of course, kicked it all off and Enrytel. And and I went in mm-hmm. and I wasn't I wasn't expecting to get that role. I wasn't anybody's idea of an archetypal Cockney character from 1937. And yet, weirdly enough, I was the most qualified being born and raised in Lambeth. And my school was in the Lambeth Walk, would you believe? Um, <laughs> and, and so I was the most qualified and, and they thought there was something about it. And I just and they offered me the job and I took it. Since then, the only all black production I've done. In fact, the only production I've done where my colour has been relevant was Carmen Jones at the Old Vic, which was an all-black cast. Mm -hmm. Uh, Apart from that, I've played Fagan. I've played, to all intents and purposes, Barry Manilow in Copacabana. (laughs) I know it's weird, isn't it? It's weird. But I've done that. I've never stood up on a soap. Perhaps I should have done. But I've never stood up on a soapbox and, uh, and, and gone on about, you know, we should have more black actors and we should be doing that. I kind of got my head down and I got on with it. And, uh, and it seems to, it doesn't work for everybody. And I'm not saying we should all do it that way because we, we do need people, you know, as we know, uh, Martin Luther King, to stand up and be counted and push the barriers. I think that by doing it, mm. you have stood out against it. Because I do remember when you took over in Me and My Girl mm. that there was a fuss made about it. And it was one of the yeah. early times that I remember people saying, it doesn't matter, it's a play. Colour is completely irrelevant. Yeah, plays are not, it's not the real world. It's a completely made up world, even if you're recreating a true story. I mean, if, if I walked on and I go, oh, I'm the giant, everyone goes, oh, he's the giant. They don't, they don't question it. So it's quite strange there. But, and I can remember at the time, it was considered interesting casting when I went into, um, <laughs> but my, but my, Mike Ockerant, who was the uh, brilliant, brilliant director of Me and My Girl, and it was rewritten by Stephen Fry or revised by Stephen Fry. Mm. And he phoned Stephen and said, I've got this, this guy, Gary Wilmot, I mean, is there any reason why he shouldn't play the role? And he said, well, well no, because the character is the bastard son of the Earl. And so he could quite easily be black. Yeah. Now, this is a really weird turnaround. The whole thing is about class. For those who don't know me and my girl, it's about there's no one to inherit. They find this boy from Lambeth because he's the bastard son of the Earl that the, the solicitor has found, and they bring him back. And, of course, he's rough and ready, and they have to turn him into aristocracy. They have to change him. The weird thing is about the piece is that He's the only honest one in there, and he remains the same despite what they do to him, but they all change. And a good example of this is his name's Bill Snibson, and all the way through his kind of mentor, which is um, Mariah Stangley Asherton, she takes him under her wing and has to teach him the history of the Herefords. Um, She calls him William all the way. Now, William, 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 all the way through. (laughs) And then right at the very end, she goes, you're a true Hereford, Bill. She just calls him Bill. And, and for me, that's a magical moment in that piece. But they decided that it would be all right for, for me to play. And I'm pleased they did because it absolutely changed my life. Yeah. It fitted me like a glove. Yeah, it was a great show, wasn't it? It is a great show. But the production itself, I, I've never seen one that comes anywhere near Mike Ockrant's one. No. Amazing. And I saw that production a number of times because I had friends yeah. coming in and going out and <laughs> yes. say you would go and see it again. And my kids <laughs> loved it. They were at the age where they would, if we went to town to see a show, they always wanted to go and see yeah. me and my girl. So I saw I saw you do it. I saw Brian Connolly do it. Mm. I saw N. Rytel do it. And I saw yeah. Robert Lindsay do it. So I saw it four yeah. times with different people. 
there is one of those shows you could go back and see. I know that actor James Coburn came to see it at least half a dozen times. Uh, Beyond Borg came to see it 18 times, the tennis player. <laughs> and, and the artist, um, David Shepard, who does those wonderful paintings of elephants. Again, sadly, he's gone. But uh, wonderful paintings about elephants and wildlife. He must have seen the show 150 times and he would bring his family with him every time. And he absolutely loved it. It was the way he spent his downtime, me and my girl. Well, it was a joyous show. So you did it with Paul Grunert? No, Paul left the year I came in. Lloyd Lamble was the butler. I don't know if you remember Lloyd. In those St Trinian's movies, uh, Joyce Grenfell is engaged to a police officer and she's always saying to him, we're engaged, are we going to get married? Oh, well, yes, he would say, you know, and that was Lloyd. <laughs> he was absolutely fine. He was Australian, actually, but developed this wonderful BBC English accent and did loads of movies. But, um, yeah, so it was him and it was me and Jessica Martin and Patrick Cargill, that was his last year um, oh. with it, Patrick, who was uh, just, he he had doubts about me doing it. I found out later. Um, there, there was a particular moment, you may recall it, it's where the character Bill and Sir John are very drunk, um, how they're going to deal, and it's where they bond, really, the first time they bond. Mm. And they put their arms around the family solicitor and their arms kind of drop either side. And then we kind of lift up, we take his glasses off <laughs> and we do the hair or we did something else and then put it all back in. He always used to get a round of applause. And months later, it came out that Patrick had said that he didn't think it would work with a black hand one side and a white hand the other side. Uh-huh. However, when he left, he came back to see the show about six months into the run. And he wrote me the most glowing note in which he described me as a comedy genius. Now, I don't think I'm that, but the thing is, it came from Patrick Cargill, and that was just such a wonderful thing. Yes, he was a great comic, wasn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah, great. I toured with Patrick in a terrible comedy, but he was very funny at it, playing the butler. Oh, is he? Yeah. We used to play backgammon in between shows. Oh, did you? And uh, whenever you went to his dressing room, he would put on his television hairpiece. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> he had a, a hairpiece, but it still had the lace around it. Yes, yeah, yeah. To make himself look more presentable. Yeah, he was so good and kind to me in the show. He would stand in the, the wings and, and a couple of occasions. This was a, a week or two into the run, and he'd say, do you know that would get a better reaction if you did this this way? Mm. And uh, and I'd go out and i go, oh, that's absolutely right. But he, he did a thing which I've christened cargling after him. Yes. Uh, and it's talking while you're doing your lines. <laughs> it's those kind of, mm, yeah, yeah, mm, mm-hmm. He did that a lot. So I call it cargling. Very good. He used to make me smile. On my opening night at the Old Vic, the first show I ever did in London, on the stage with Sir Anthony Quayle and, and a number of other very great old actors, oh, wow. Patrick Cargo playing the butler, yeah. we had a very important moment right at the beginning of the play where we were supposed to turn the television on and see the news and find that fox hunting had been banned. Sounds like a fascinating play, doesn't it? Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we turned the television on and it didn't work. And everybody went, oh, my God. And we all stood on stage. I think I made some terrible joke about, I told you you should have paid the television licence. Got a laugh and covered a bit of it. And then we heard this thumping sound as Patrick ran down the stairs and he came on trying to do up his bow tie. And we went, yes. Yeah. And he said, did you see the news? Fox hunting's been banned. <laughs> <laughs> oh! <laughs> and he saved oh, us. Oh, that's terrific. It is terrific. Well, the brilliant thing, strangely enough, as we've gone round full circle, and the thing we haven't mentioned, but Patrick was gay. Yes, he was, yeah, yeah. And he yeah. would have gone right through all those years when the world 
said that what he was doing was a crime. It was a crime, yeah, absolutely. Absurd. It's taken a long time, and we still got, as I say, still got a lot of work to do, but I'm pleased that um, it's more and more accepted as part of normal behaviour, which it is. Well, well done for putting round the horn in. One, because <laughs> it's you. still, after all these years, fantastically funny. Yeah, it is. And two, because, as you say, it shows that the world has moved on which is good. Oh, thank you very much. So, Gary, what else have we got? Uh, We've got, uh, this is a bit nostalgic now, it's the smell of my mum's Sunday roast. It was all part, funny enough, all part of listening to the radio on a Sunday. My mum would, um, we hardly ever had roast potatoes, but we always had like beef that was done all the way through. (laughs) There's not a hint that it ever came off an animal, but the smell was amazing. So I I so remember that and her carving it. And But the biggest thing, it was the mashed potato that we had. She would mash the potato and and get a big spoon of it and whack it on the plate. And I was always amazed that the plate didn't break. (laughs) You know the things you had at school? It was like a scooper, wasn't it? Like an ice cream scoop. They used to give you two scoops of mashed potato at school dinner, little kind of round bits of mashed potato and uh, but my mum had the spiritual whack and it made this noise that was ear piercing and the plate never broke i just don't know how i have no idea how but the smell of those uh sunday lunches i don't know why they were uh, you know it, it's really weird when we look at things um old things i always say when the world was in black and white and it was apart from when you went to piccadilly circus you saw all those lights and they were amazing and now we just walk past them you know it's a, we, we've seen it before um but back then the world was black and white and the smells were different as well and when you when you walked home and you got this smell of of roast dinner when you walked in it was really pungent it was really strong and pungent not quite the right word but <laughs> really strong and 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 it got your your mouth watering and the, the gravy that she made and it was just wonderful so if I, if there was a way of of kind of canning that smell of Sunday roast. I'd like to put that in the in the time capsule. I'm going to market that along with Thames water. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, if I can do it... You haven't got to do it. you just got to put it on the label. Because once they've opened it, you, go, you can take it back to the shop and you go, well, how do we know it didn't smell of roast? Did it? You opened it. But I remember I used to play football, a lot of football, and I used to play on a Sunday morning. And my brother had since got married and left home and I was still living at home. And we still had lunch at one o'clock, even though I was I wouldn't get home till two. Mm. It was only me and my mum living there, but she still had the food on the table at one o'clock. And <laughs> and I would come home and and she would have put it on a, a saucepan of water on, on the cooker there and uh, keeping it like a bain-marie, keeping yeah. it warm. And so by the time I took the, the you know, the, the gravy, had skin over it and all that <laughs> stuff. But it's not just the roast beef, it's my mum's rice pudding. She used to have this enamel tin that she used to make rice pudding in with nutmeg. And, um, and those, that's is a very evocative smell for me now. So both those, if they could go, so we've got we've got the London fog in a tin, yeah. we've got the Thames water in a tin, and we've got my <laughs> mum's Sunday roast, and we've got a dessert as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, now I'm happy to do it, and I think that that smell of Sunday lunch is probably mm. fairly universal. We all know that smell. And isn't it weird how I can remember this? I don't get it quite so much now, but when I went in friends' houses, friends' houses, each house had a different smell. And I, I don't know whether it was new because I'm a child and you're new to, you know, it's a new smell that you kind of register it. But I can remember going in Stephen Wally's house and that had a different smell to my house and a mm. different to Jimmy Paraskeeva. It smelled differently. I suppose it's from what the things they cooked or whatever it was, but the smells were always different. I had a friend whose father worked for a tobacco company and he would have boxes of cigarettes around all over the place and smoked 
all the time. I mean, endlessly. And by the time we got to the point of doing A-levels, everybody used to go to his house because he encouraged us all to smoke. Terrible thing, really. We had, I mean, my mum and my dad smoked, um, but we had a great big heavy table lighter. The way the ton, uh, <laughs> whether you went down to it with your cigarette or whether you tried to lift it and cigarette boxes as well, people offering cigarettes. It was a kind of a, but I tried smoking. I, where I worked at the GLC, I was a warehouseman and forklift driver. And uh, and I loved the camaraderie of it all. I love, we all sat around on our benches in the tea break, having our cheese rolls and opening flasks. And the fags would go around and the little things that they would do, like say they'd light a match, but they'd only ever light, two cigarettes with it because they go no, no no it's bad luck to light a third you know it's another match <laughs> and all those that kind of uh, the routine of it all you know mm. uh, and and I kind of love that and I bought myself some cigarettes and I'd never been so sick in my life <laughs> I was sick for days and days afterwards and I left them on the seat on the bus there were about 15 left in the bottom and I left them on the seat on the bus and never smoked again never smoked again oh you lucky person <laughs> It just didn't get, go with me. I absolutely hated it. Uh, and funny enough, I don't know whether it was because we were all sportsmen, but I don't remember any of my mates smoking when I was growing up either. We just didn't. Maybe we didn't have the money to to buy fags. No, probably. I don't really remember anybody not smoking. And I think about it, there were one or two friends who generally they were into sports, but you they, you always thought they were rather strange. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. It's interesting watching old interviews on television of particularly on Parkinson, American uh, film stars are suddenly in the deliver answering a question and they get the cigarettes out and they light up and they're having it and they go, well, you know, I first worked with Bogart when I, you know, and they're smoking yeah. away. I just can't imagine those times now. No, no, you really can't. And thank goodness, because I have to say it yeah. took me many years and many tries to get rid of that habit. It's one of the best things I've ever done. Yeah, yeah. Did you feel better? Did it, did it make you feel better? No, I feel shit. <laughs> I know, murder effect. <laughs> they say that aeroplanes, the air on aeroplanes isn't as good now because when everyone smoked on aeroplanes, the filter systems were so much better. Mm. And the same in pubs as well. You've, weirdly enough, since the ban smoking in pubs, you can smell the urinals. Of course. <laughs> before, before I, know, I walk into pubs now, I go, it stinks of piss in here. Of course, it was the smoke that covered all of that up. Yeah. Well, I'm glad it's disappearing from society. And you see kids with um, vaping and things like that, but even that is becoming unfashionable now, I think. Yeah, it is. It's, I mean, there was a time when people smoked because the Hollywood guys smoked and it looked cool to smoke and all the rest. I've never looked cool with a cigarette in my hand. <laughs> if ever I've got to have one in a play or whatever, my wife always says, you just don't look like you smoke. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what it is. I've tried holding it a different way, or which goes, no, you don't look like you smoke. So, yeah, I'm pleased I, I never took that up. Mm. I can remember my mum, she was quite house proud, and I can remember her having cleaned up. She'd finish a cigarette and run it under the tap and put it in the bin. Uh-huh. She hardly ever used ashtrays unless company were there. That was <laughs> trying to be posh. You don't want to get them dirty. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. We also had one of these. I don't know if you remember these. It's all this. It's great talking to you, Michael, because my I'm revisiting my history, my past. <laughs> we had one of these ashtrays. It was a floor standing ashtray. And on the top of it was the ashtray. And you pushed a little button and it spun round yeah. and dropped all of the ash into the into an ashtray that was and then came back up again so that you couldn't actually. <laughs> 
actually see the fag end. It was all those things that would make you want to smoke, I think. <laughs> You'd go, yeah, I, I want to have a right. go with the pressy down thing. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it was black and kind of a brassy colour thing. Well, those great big table lighters that you were talking about, I always picture them as a great big chunk of onyx or something. Onyx, that's right. That <laughs> Where's onyx gone? <laughs> <laughs> but not only that, somebody looked at a bit of onyx one day and went, do you know what? That'd make a lovely table light. <laughs> I can't think of any other bloody use for it. <laughs> no, they sold loads of it. Loads of it. That's going in with the canned fog, canned all that stuff. That's going in with that. <laughs> well, uh, we're going to get rid of the smell of smoke and we're going to put in the lovely smell of Sunday roast. Yeah, that'll do it. I'm salivating at the very thought of it. <laughs> so we've got one more thing to put in there, Gary. Yeah, you said it was something that I'd want to put in and get rid of. Yeah. There's no way of doing this, really, but it's... Um, I would like to put litter dropping in. I find it absolutely infuriating that people just throw stuff out of their car windows, and they're the worst. Mm -hmm. And where I live, it's quite countryfied. In fact, um, there's about a five-minute walk to a pub on the corner in the little village near where we live, and I walk the dog, and, and there's always litter, you know, usually Red Bull cans and stuff like that. And so the wife and I, we put our high-vis jackets on and we went out with the picker-upper things and um, and we cleared it all between here and the, and the village. Brilliant. And we had about four bin bags full of the stuff. You know, um, we do rely on other people on the camp. Why aren't the council doing it? Yeah. But sometimes, you know, it's very satisfying to just get off your ass and go and do it yourself. There's so many things that we rely on our councils and all the rest of it for, and our badly funded councils, I might add. But uh, but things like that, you can make a difference. They don't just stand there complaining about mm -hmm. it. But if there was a way of putting maybe some sort of giant hoover that sucks any litter that's dropped before it hits the floor <laughs> <laughs> into the time capsule. I think we'll go for a fixture on cars that if they open the window and chuck something out of it, they get an electric <laughs> shock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or uh, these are very popular a couple of Christmases ago. They were those things, they were like a pie in a hand. And you, you kind of throw a dice and you turn a little dial and it. Well, if it's one of those in the steering wheel. <laughs> so an airbag full of custard. <laughs> <laughs> There we are. We got it. Oh, what are we wasting our time doing this for? We should be in <laughs> automobile development. We're going to be worth a fortune. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Absolutely, mate. I agree with you completely on this. Griffiths Jones does exactly what you were saying. Oh, really? Whenever he goes for a walk in the countryside, he takes a bin bag with him and a little picker-upper. Yeah. And always comes back with a full bag. It's really up to us as adults to educate kids to not do that. And we're, we're kind of breeding a, a generation now that I think are much more conscious than we ever were about environmental issues because um, it's such a huge part of their education mm -hmm. now so who knows um, and it's not really about saving the world the world's going to be here long after we're gone it's about saving humanity and saving the environment we need to live in to survive yes that's what it's about and dropping litter is a tiny part of it but it, if we can all kind of just not do it well, there's a lot of us yeah. it may be a tiny part per person but add it all up yeah i don't know whenever i see young people it's usually young boys and i always give them a look and actually quite recently people have caught me looking at them and gone uh, sorry, mate, and picked it up. Yeah. Which is nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. We do things in our teens particularly and because we don't know what consequences are. 
we've no idea of consequences and, and we do not just dropping litter but all sorts of things we do because we're growing up and we're learning mm-hmm. and it, in, in a funny way that's kind of that's understandable but I was connected with a with a club called the Bedminster Down Boys Club in Bristol and they did a lot of great work they had their own parliament their Bedminster is not a particularly wealthy area of Bristol and um, it's a massive housing estate and it's it's got its problems but they had a guy called Steve Long created this boys club down there and uh, they would raise money. They had their own parliament. They would decide how they spent the money they raised. They bought a, a cottage in South Wales where they would go and kayak and all that stuff oh, once a month. Um, and it was a, an amazing thing. And it really shaped a lot of young boys in the same way as boxing clubs used to do all those years ago. And then they received a small um, grant from the, from the, council to keep them going and then one year they said we can't give you the grant anymore but that was enough to make the club close and now it's about false economy now they have a, a police car um with fully equipped policemen which would probably cost a lot more than the ten thousand pounds <laughs> they were getting a year yep. um to to patrol the place trying to keep these kids out of trouble so it's uh, it's quite weird really mm. I, I don't understand the certain decisions that, that are made but these kids they're loose and they're learning and they don't know and uh, and it's a little bit but Lord of the Flies you know they um, they struggle to for their own in their own little environment mm. and America very often make the wrong decisions but it's up to us to to help them out out of that and to become caring adults yeah absolutely yeah. and they will do. Everybody makes mistakes yeah, and, yeah. and they should be forgiven for them and yeah, dealt should, with yeah. gently. Oh, some of the things I did in my... In our day, Gary, would have been thrashed <laughs> within an inch of our lives. Yeah, we'd have had the peelers after us, wouldn't we? <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's true, though. Uh, it was those days when a, if a policeman or a teacher clipped you around the ear, you went home and sold your mum, she'd give you another clip and say, <laughs> well, you must have done something wrong. Which led to many, many injustices. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear yeah. Gary it's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you about the things you want to put in a time capsule I'm very happy to put all of them in there seal it up and keep them safe so thank you so much for that we are now going to go off well I'll see you in about 10 minutes on the bomb site. Okay. <laughs> we'll have a bike built by the end of the day <laughs> alright mate thank you very much indeed it's been a real joy You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Gary Wilmot, the man who probably should have been my mate since our school days. Ah, well, such is fate. If you've enjoyed listening to the two of us natural way, then why not subscribe to this podcast for all other episodes past and yet to come? If you do, then please do rate the show and maybe leave a small but kind review. Thank you. You can follow me and my time capsule on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram for information about what's coming up and you can hear the theme tune, that's the jaunty music playing now, if you search for it on Spotify. In fact, you can download it. The composer, past the Peas music, will be delighted. This was a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton-Stevens. Right, would you Adam and Eve it? I'm off up the apples and pears to grab some bread and honey, comb the old barnet, wash my boat brakes with a bit of Bob Hope, polish the dinky-doos, put on a smart whistle and flute, kiss the trouble and strife, jump in a sherbet dab and pop down to the rub-a-dub-dub, or, as you may know it, the Battle Cruiser, where I plan to get completely Brahms and List before staggering home with a Ruby Murray and then being Tom and Dick out of the Tommy Trinder. That's right, I'm going back to my roots. So watch it. Yes, I know, I'm a complete Hampton Wick. Bye.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.